Wait, don't skip this. We have launched the Folly Coffee Hot Sauce Kickstarter. Go to follycoffee.com slash kickstarter now. We only have one week for the early bird specials. Don't miss out. Disregard this terrible audio quality. I needed to get the message out. Follycoffee.com slash kickstarter. Go there now. Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 56 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right, so this episode I'm doing for a few different reasons. One, I got a new mobile setup and I needed to test it before I head out of town next weekend. I've got a couple podcast interviews lined up out there, so I wanted to test this. Two, it's been a while since I've done a solo episode. I've had so many awesome guests on recently that I quite frankly haven't had the timing and schedule to be able to do it myself. And so I wanted to get on here and do a solo episode by myself. And also this will be more of like a peer business episode, which I also haven't done in a while. So I figured I would do that. And then the third reason is we have an exciting announcement. This will be launching on Tuesday, November 10th. And we are bringing to fruition something me, myself, not me, not me myself. Well, yeah. And Kevin and Jeff have been putting together for a while. And that is the announcement of Folly Coffee Hot Sauce. If you didn't listen, listen to the hype episode with me and Jeff about upcoming Folly Coffee plans, at the very tail end of that one, we announced very subtly that something was coming in the future. Casually dropped it in Folly Coffee Hot Sauce. It's something we've been working on. And yeah, you you may see it uh, coming in the soon in the future here, and we are launching the Kickstarter for that today. We have a full market launch plan for January, but are launching a Kickstarter for that. But this episode is not about all of those things. It's not the only reason I'm doing it is I thought it, a great episode would be how to launch a new product. For obvious reasons, we we are currently in the process of launching Folly Coffee Hot Sauce, and I've been doing a lot of brainstorming on effective product launches. We've had some experience over the past few years with online, uh, physical retail locations, different varying products, launching a full line at once, launching an individual product. When we launched Folly Coffee, we launched obviously three SKUs, and then we later brought in a fourth, and we had one bomb, and we had one comeback, and whatever. So I can reference those in this episode about how to launch a new product. But those are all the reasons why I wanted to record this episode. I'm sorry for rambling in what should have only been a minute to begin the episode. So before getting into just a more general how to launch a new product, I'm obviously going to be referring very specifically to hot sauce a lot of the way because that is what I'm racking my brain around right now. But I will also reference back to my days at Sam Adams, my days of launching Folly, things that went really well, things that didn't go well, and all the stuff that it takes to be successful within that. But first, I'm sure for those of you who weren't aware that we're doing this of why the hell is a coffee company releasing a hot sauce? And... That is a very legitimate question. So I want to run through that before getting into the business part of the episode. There are a lot of different factors that went into the hot sauce. First, I will get to how did we even think to do a hot sauce? Well, COVID hit in March. It was around, I guess, April that all of a sudden we realized that this quarantine, this, these lockdowns are going to be in place much longer than expected. We'd already relaunched the website, so I started brainstorming. What were other ways that we could engage with customers directly during these lockdowns? People are at home. People aren't going out to cafes. Our wholesale business is shut down. More people are buying coffee online with the launch of our website. How do we engage these customers if we can't be in-store sampling all the obvious negative things for an in-person business during COVID. And so me and my childhood friend, Kevin, Kevin Coke, uh, short for Kevin Kokenauer, is a very talented chef in Minneapolis. He's currently working over at Open Arms, an amazing organization we've done work with in the past. And I said, why don't we start doing some sort of a YouTube show of cooking with coffee? It's something that I had experimented with personally just 
for fun in my own kitchen of using coffee as an ingredient in food, both coffee grounds, brewed coffee. We said we can just continue to do these episodes and come up with awesome, fun recipes for people at home to be able to do themselves. So the first one we did is like the classic coffee as a recipe thing, and that was a steak rub. If you want to see more about that, check out our YouTube channel. We've got the full episode of the Folly Coffee Steak Rub that we did for that. Second episode, I said I'm a huge hot sauce nerd. My entire top row of my fridge is pretty much always filled up with 10 different hot sauces at once. And I said, it would be really cool if we could make a coffee hot sauce. The reason that was intriguing intriguing to me from a flavor profile is most hot sauces are vinegar based. And so if you take a really nice, bright coffee that also has a really nice bright acidity. Vinegar is very highly acidic. So could the acidity in coffee naturally complement in a hot sauce like the acidity of white vinegar? And then also the component is that a lot of uh, hot sauces use sugar to balance out the acidity of the vinegar. And so I go, maybe the natural sweetness in a really high-end coffee, like Folly Coffee, could be the almost like natural sweetener or just a natural source of sweetness for a hot sauce. And that was very intriguing to me. And so Kevin, being the very talented chef he is, whips up a recipe in his head, writes it down, and then comes over to my place and we make a hot sauce. And it was really cool. It was fun to see the whole process of roasting the peppers and blending them all together and the blend of spices he chose to create the complex flavor profile, garlic, fresh garlic, onion, all this uh, fresh habanero, all these different awesome ingredients, blending them all together and then using brewed coffee. And this is where the story begins. We finish it, we bottle it, we taste it. And when I tasted it, it was like, one of those oh shit moments. It reminded me a lot of when I tasted the cold brew that Brandon makes for Filterra for the very first time. I did not want to start a cold brew business uh, brewing and kegging cold brew, but tasting that cold brew was one of the few factors that led to being like, oh shit, I think I got to take this really seriously. And that's exactly what happened when I tasted that hot sauce. And not only was it really good, if it was just like a really good sauce and I could immediately think, oh, this reminds me of blank. I would not want to do it because if a product reminds me of something, unless it reminds me of it, and this is a way, 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 way better version, it's not going to do well because there's already an answer for that in the market. But as I taste it, I go, this is unlike any hot sauce I've ever had. It had a more smoky profile from the Chipotle base we did. It had enough spice in the kick that the flavors still came through, but it still had enough heat to be a really true hot sauce. And the brewed coffee rounded it out in a way that was like, if I tasted it and I didn't know there was coffee in it, I don't know that I would have pointed that out, that that's definitely the ingredient that's popping off in here. But once you know it's in there, it makes sense. But it added this layer of complexity that it was not like anything I've tried. And I go, this is really good. We need to make another batch ASAP and see if anyone else thinks that it's as good as I do or as Kevin did. And so we whipped up another batch a couple weeks later, did the whole thing of handing this out to friends and family. And immediately after handing it out to friends and family, it was like, when's the next batch? We need more. We're like, oh, this is just like a one-time thing for fun. Well, I'll buy more. I'll, I'll buy it from you if you make, make another batch. Can you make another batch? And so that's what we did. We made another batch, kind of like low-key sold them. We got our farmer's market license so that we could technically direct sell to our friends and family legally. And we released that batch. And then the demand continued. It was becoming a regular part of friends and family hot sauce use at home. So I said, if we're going to do this, let me start researching this category. Um, what are the existing players in hot sauce? Is the overall overall category healthy or would we be fighting dying trends? Let me go out and see what other hot sauces from a flavor profile are on the market. And then I'll start to make a decision if this is an interest in a business sense. And so I did some research into the hot sauce category and Again, it reminded me a lot of the very first time that I started to look into the coffee industry. You see 
a predicted doubling of the hot sass category by 2026 driven by the US. The US is overall is like half of the world's hot sauce consumption and it is the innovative unique products that are driving this growth. It's not like Tabasco and Franks are just growing at a rapid pace. It's these new and innovative products that are driving the growth of the hot sauce category. So I go, oh, it's another oh shit moment. You go we have a very delicious product. It's unlike any hot sauce I've tasted in the past, which I should note. I've had a lot of hot sauces. It's not like I've had a few and I go, oh, this is solid. I, I, I've tried a bunch of different hot sauces throughout my life. It's, it didn't remind me of anything in particular that I tasted. So I got a unique product, delicious, high, high quality product, and the category is growing. And that's where we started to take it more seriously. And what would it take to actually launch this thing? The final component that fell into place that said, not only are we going to do this, but we have to do this fast is in a planning meeting with uh, one of our local grocery store chain buyers, I just casually dropped at the end of the meeting, what do you think of the hot sauce category? And they go, well, our store is up overall double digits this year, and hot sauce is far outpacing that. Why? And I said, uh, we made one? And so they hooked, they linked me up with the hot sauce buyer who I'd sent samples to. They love the samples of the product that we sent. The category is emerging and we got a January distribution in the chain of grocery stores. So this became very serious, very fast. And that leads to kind of how are we doing a hot sauce? Why are we doing it? And a really good question I've gotten as well is, is this a distraction? You know, you have Folly Coffee, which is growing. You've got Filtera cold-brewed coffees, which is growing. And are you worried that a another, a really another separate business is a distraction from these two? And there is an argument that it does take up a portion of my time each week, a portion of my focus and attention. But the reason I'm excited about this is one, it is a food bev product. So it is the same existing customer base that we already have. And so one of the hardest things you could try to do is build a new customer base or build new relationships. And so having this existing group of customers to sell a product through the same channels is a big advantage when launching a new product. So in this way, I almost view it as if it's a product extension of our current Folly Coffee line. The next question is, well, why do you call it Folly Coffee Hot Sauce? Don't you worry about people can get confused with that? And I like the cross-pollination of brands because the hot sauce, we're not just using a brand and slapping it on a new thing. It literally has Folly Coffee in it. And so I think it is a cool way for a hot sauce lover to learn about Folly Coffee and for a Folly Coffee lover to potentially try the hot sauce. I, I like that cross-pollination of the branding. And I think because the work we've put into Folly to establish it as a high-quality brand, Brand, it does benefit the hot sauce. And then the third reason is we have really efficient systems in place to produce and distribute this hot sauce. The final, final piece in planning that really made me confident that this would be an efficient use of my time and worthwhile endeavor is on the Folly Coffee side, we I would never be comfortable using a co-packer. Um, a co-packer is the industry term for going to someone else to manufacture your product. Because of the quality of coffees that we roast, I would not be comfortable going to a co-packer to roast our coffees because not just anyone can roast our coffees. It, we're sourcing high-end beans and the roasting process that goes into it is very challenging. So at this point, I'm only comfortable with Jeff roasting our coffees. He's the one buying them. He's the one sourcing them. He's the one working with the farmers, working with the importers. He has to be the one roasting them. So it's not really possible to use a co-packer on the coffee side. On the hot sauce side, the difficulty in the process is creating the recipe. But once the recipe is creating, the techniques in which to mix all of the ingredients is not difficult. And so the difficult, the difficult part of hot sauce was solved up front by Kevin creating this amazing recipe using brewed coffee. 
And I'm totally comfortable going to a co-packer with this recipe because it's a very simple procedure once we find the right partner. And that's exactly what happened. We found a co-packer that has all of the necessary ingredients that we need to be able to make the sauce to the quality that we expect. And we got samples back from the co-packer this week and they tasted awesome. We approved them. We are moving forward on our January launch. The co-packer will be the one making, bottling, and labeling the hot sauce with our recipe and our uh, ingredient specification, and we found a distributor that can distribute and deliver the product for us. And the value of a distributor is not only the person will be going out and delivering your product, they are also in charge of the accounting for those uh, for those accounts and so they will be the ones collecting invoices uh, and then also inventory control they're watching inventory control they're the ones that are customer facing on the logistical side and then you can become more highly specialized on the customer facing side focusing on selling and marketing which if you've listened to any episode about folly coffee you know that i think extreme focus on your role is a key part to business and so my role at folly coffee hot sauce will be almost a more refined version than what my roles become at Folly Coffee of finding new customers, being the customer facing person and getting the, the word and the product out there. And by the way, unrelated, but this is also what we'll be doing with Folly Coffee is working with the same distributor, market distributing to distribute our coffees. And this will take the delivery side of the coffee away from me and Jeff, which will be a huge relief in time We'll be able to do more outside of the deliveries, and it does increase our ability to distribute geographically, which I'm really excited about, some potential opportunities from that, but we are launched with them in January, so we do not know what that will be until we begin that, but really excited to get that rolling. So that is the long-winded explanation for why the heck is a coffee company releasing a hot sauce but if you're listening to this, you're curious about it, go to our Kickstarter Kickstarter page. I'll link to it in the bio here. Go check it out. We have some awesome rewards, some early bird buys that will be for a limited one-week run. So if you're listening to this within a week, hopefully there's some of those early bird specials still in stock. But if you want to be the first ever to try the Folly Coffee hot sauce, get on that Kickstarter and we will start shipping them out January when we go to market. The first batch will go to our Kickstarter supporters. That little portion brought to you by Folly Coffee Hot Sauce. Now, I will mark the time of where I'm at so that I can put in the show notes that at this time, the talk about the hot sauce is finished and we're going to go into how to launch a new product to market. So I will be talking about the things that I've done that have been successful, the things that I have not done about launching new products to market, why I think they work, effective ways, and then what we're going to implement with the launch of Folly Coffee hot sauce that I'm trying to combine all the lessons learned into the most effective product launch. So you're sitting here. Let's take two types of people. One will be the person that has absolutely no idea what they want to do. This is the type of person that wants to start a business. They They want to be an entrepreneur. They want to bring a product to market, but they do not have a product. And so they're trying to decide, what could I possibly make? Mine will be fairly specific to food and beverage, but you can apply these to other categories as well. The second type of person will be the person that has a product. They have the thing. They have the thing that they know they want to bring to market. It's awesome. It's delicious. It's innovative. I want to bring this to market. I have the things in place. How do I effectively launch this product with all of these things in place? First, I should note, if you're curious about like, hey, how do I I have just like the homemade version? How do I turn this into a commercial product? Go to one of my previous episodes of how to basically start a food beverage business. That is one of the earlier episodes. That one will have all the logistical stuff for the commercial licensing, how to launch a new product, the different uh, like state and uh, legislation steps you have to go through. So I'm going to skip over those steps and pretend that at this point you're a fully licensed product and you're looking to launch to market. That's the second person that already has all of those things in place. So let's go back to the first person. This is the person that wants to launch their own business. They want to launch their own product, but they don't know what type of product to choose. 
this type of person has a bit of an advantage from the strategic standpoint. It's a more frustrating place to be in because you really want to do this. And it's so frustrating when you're like, I feel like there's something out there that I'm missing. How do I choose it? And that's the frustrating part is not knowing, but stay positive because you have a nice strategic advantage is that you can choose the category you end up in. And this is absolutely key. And these are the things that you want to look for in the category that you are about to launch your product in. One, you want to find a product that has very few major players doing it at a high level. And the high level part of this is very important. So let's look at Folly Coffee when I entered the market in January of 2018. Obviously, you have Starbucks here in Minnesota. Obviously, you have Caribou. So you have people that are super big competitors. So you might go, how could you define that there are few major players when there are beasts like Caribou, Starbucks, lower end like McGarvey, all these different Folgers. Look at all these competitors. How can you say there are only a few major players? Because if you're starting a small food beverage business, you have to be focused on high quality items because you'll never be able to compete on price with the resources of larger businesses. And as a small producer, you can prioritize quality over larger players. So you're focusing on the high end of a category. And within the high end of that category, there are a few major players. So in coffee, in this market, I identified basically three major players at the high end of the spectrum for coffee. When I did this for Filtera cold brewed coffees, we were focusing just on tap, on, on tap, so kegged coffee. I go, I think there are only two major players in this category. And I think we can, so there's not many competitive parts in that. And with hot sauce, I'm just going to say it in this market, I think there's one dominant player, Crybaby Craig's. They have an absolutely killer hot sauce. It is so dang good. And you'll see, well, Rob, if you've got this amazing hot sauce in your market, why would you still launch one if you think that hot sauce is so dang good? And you'll see why in a second here. But look for a category with few major players in the high end. So as you walk a grocery store, as you're browsing the internet, you're not finding many examples of a category. So you go down the aisle, you find a specific category. For our case, it was coffee, but it could be anything. You could go to yogurt, which is obviously blown up over the past 10 years with Greek yogurt and probiotic yogurt. But if you walk down the yogurt aisle 10 years ago, you'd walk down and be like, oh, there's only like one offering of high-end yogurt. So let's just continue with that example of yogurt for some reason. Let's pretend it's 10 years ago. The next step is that there is a blank white space in the category for point of differentiation. I'm going to dive more into differentiation in a bit here, but I'm just going to highlight this, that the reason the hot sauce made sense is the first check mark is there's a few major players in the market for hot sauce. It is one major player in the high end here in the Twin Cities. And I would argue even Minnesota. The second is, is there an opportunity or a blank space for product differentiation? When you taste the Folly Coffee hot sauce side by side with Crybaby Craig's, they are vastly different and I think awesome in their own different ways. And this is extremely important. If I came to uh, the market with a hot sauce, this is how Crybaby Craig's is made and why it's so, so dang good, is it's fresh habaneros that are pickled. And so you get this nice, bright, high acid, nice spicy kick hot sauce. Ours is like smoky with that like coffee profile and still a good spicy kick. But the underlying base flavor of our Folly Coffee hot sauce is so different from the major player of Crybaby Craig's, which is an amazing sauce, that it's different enough that somebody who is already consuming a lot of hot sauce could potentially want to have both in their fridge at the same time or someone who might not like that flavor profile might be more apt to like a more smoky kind of like blended spices with this unique component of coffee in their sauce so product differentiation that the of the few players in that category your product is different and unless I'm, I'm going to pause on that for now because differentiation is a key one here. So first, a few major players. Second, there's a gap in 
product differentiation within those few major players in the high end of the category. And then the third thing is, where is the category trending? And this is key. This is one where you can't fool yourself. You can't say, well, I found this one source that's, I, I, you know, I went to reallygoodhotsauce.com and reallygoodhotsauce.com said that hot sauce, people love it and it's growing. And they didn't cite their sources, but they said that this category is growing. You have to try to find every legitimate source you can find on the category of the product you have chosen or are interested in in or are researching. So this is exactly what I did for hot sauce. This is what I did for coffee way back in the day. So in 2016, I first had the idea that maybe this is something I want to do, uh, 2016, 2017, somewhere around there. And so the first thing was, let's see where coffee is going. Here are the trends you should look for in a potential category where there's a few major players and you have a product that is of real differentiation. Again, this is for the person that doesn't have the product. So what you're looking for is a blank space of flavor profile within that existing category or type of product, whatever it may be. It doesn't necessarily have to be flavor. It could be health benefits, whatever category you're entering. But the third thing, here are the things you're looking for in a category of the potential product you might want to launch. One, Is the number of people consuming this product going up or down? And over how many years has this been happening? In the case of coffee, the number of coffee drinkers has remained remarkably stable over like 10 to 12 years, which is a good sign. That means coffee drinking is a long-term trend. It's stable. For hot sauce, the number of hot sauce consumers continues to increase over a period of the last five years. This is a very positive trend. It means more people are adopting this trend. And, you know, five years, you could say, is this going to be a fad that kicks out soon? Or is this going to be something that we now have a new established base of hot sauce drinkers? It's a higher risk, higher reward. But I like that upswing. So you're looking at the number of people consuming the product. The next thing you're looking for is the amount being spent on the product. And this is a key component. When I was researching coffee, the number of coffee drinkers remained the same, but the spending on overall coffee was going up. What this indicates to me, and this is why you should look for this, is that the amount an individual is spending on coffee has continued to increase over the past eight to 10 years. For hot sauce, you have to consider if the number of people buying this product is going up is the amount of money outpacing that because here's the hypothetical hypothetical situation that could arise you go oh the number of people buying hot sauce is increasing oh the amount they're spending on hot sauces or the amount being spent on hot sauce is also going up but if the rate of people is increasing faster than the rate of the amount being spent this means the amount per consumer is actually decreasing. This is a hypothetical situation. If the number of people adopting the new product is outpacing the amount being spent, that means there's probably one specific product driving the growth of this, and it's probably a lower priced product than the average of the industry. So you want to be careful of this because you might think because the number of people adopting this product is going up, that people that are adopting the product are not willing to spend more. What you're looking for is if the number of people adopting this product, and let's talk hot sauce right now, the number of people beginning to use hot sauce is continuing to go up, but the amount being spent on hot sauce is increasing faster than the number of people. So this means not only are there more people adopting this product, the amount they're spending is also increasing, which means the new people entering this category are entering it, buying the higher end of the product. And again, this is my speculation, but it seems to have worked out so far. Whereas in coffee, because the the number of customers remained the same and the spending went up, that meant existing coffee customers were starting to spend more, which is also appealing and has more potential of long-term stability. Because you don't know if these new people entering hot sauce, if they're going to stick around and continue to buy, or if over time they will spend less. So that is the summary of the person that doesn't know what product they want to bring to market, what business they want to start. 
you want to look for a category with few major players that there's an existing blank white space for potential product differentiation of those few major players that they don't have something of that. And you want trends that point towards quality spending. So increase of customers, but the spending is is increasing more than the number of customers. If the number of customers in that category is going down over a period of years, do not enter that category. Don't fool yourself that that is a potential big mistake. And this is the big strategic advantage. Someone who doesn't have a product yet has over the person with a product is you can decide not to enter a category based on this information. And this, so let's go on to the person that does have a product. At this point, you can't really choose the existing gap in product differentiation. You can't really choose the category you're in because you have a product already made. Hopefully, it's a product that you have a great story behind. Usually, when somebody has a product that they've made themselves, there's a really good story how they came to that. <laughs> so, the person without a product, you do risk the thing where like your story is, oh, I saw a really attractive category, and so I went out and made this product. So, you might have to find someone with a more uh, with a better story or has the ability to be able to make that product at the highest level. In fact, that is key that you find someone that can make the product at the highest level. When you've made it yourself, you have the advantage that you have a true authentic story of how that product came to be. But now you're looking at the market and going, how do I launch this to market? This is where differentiation in marketing becomes more key. Hopefully, the category you're in is what I listed before, that there's very few major players in the high end of the category. Hopefully, the flavor or the approach of your product is different from those few major players and hopefully the trends are good but you can't control these things if you've already decided this is the product you're bringing to market this is where marketing and strategy become key so if you're going to launch a product that you already have so i already coffee is my passion i already decided launching high-end single origin specialty coffee is what i'm doing so this is the strategy i took with Folly Coffee, is marketing differentiation becomes key. I always recommend the book Blue Ocean Strategy. If you listen to this podcast, you've heard me recommend it multiple times. This book gives you the framework on how to do everything in a way that differentiates you from your competition. And so marketing, by this, the first step is packaging. The packaging has to be different from the existing players of the similar products on the market. It absolutely has to be. Do not look at the other players in the market and let that guide what your packaging looks like. You can use this you can use this for the format. So let's let's say coffee. Even but even we did this different. I mean, you could look at certain things oh, we have to do this in the same jar that everybody else does it in. There's just no other options. But if you do have an option to do a different style, do it. So for example, the standard for coffee, especially grocery stores, is like the 12 ounce like uh, flat bottom pouches because you can roll up the top, it's got a flat bottom, nice and compact, stays nice and neat on the shelf. So we're like, well, let's do side gusseted or let's do a flat pouch. No, no, no. So the um, flat bottom gusseted pouch is the standard. So we said, let's do a flat pouch. It is harder to put on the shelf, but it is way taller. It's wider. And so you get a really nice billboarding effect and it really pops off on the shelf and it looks so different than every other package on there. So I'll give the example of how I approach this from Folly Coffee. I'm, I'm entering coffee. There's a lot of players in coffee. There's a few major players in the high end, but how do I differentiate from the packaging that's on the shelf? So I went there, and what I noticed is everybody had flat bottom pouches. Can we do something that's not flat bottom? The second thing I noticed, a lot of either muted tones, like white or craft cardboard or like pastels, whatever, and very minimalistic branding or very intricate, like beautiful art that looks really great up close, but is kind of harder to see on the shelf. So I said, okay, if there's if the white pastel color is the dominant player, we need a really dark background. Really intricate artwork is the other major player. We need branding that is very simple and clean. And then every other font and everything is very like cursive -y and fancy or like minimalistic and fancy. We need something that's like cartoony and cool and fun. And so that's how I started to approach it. I used a lot of like EDM DJs 
their example, like Steve Aoki is amazing branding. It's high energy. So I was like, we need to exude this kind of energy. So if you have a product and you're looking at the competitors, differentiation and packaging and uh, packaging style and also what's on your packaging is very key. Strategy then becomes key. How do you communicate to your customers? If there is, especially if you're launching a high end product, if there's one way people have been communicating to customers, is there a new customer base that isn't currently consuming your product that you might be able to attract by speaking differently? So for the coffee side, this what we, uh, for Folly Coffee, what we did to attract a new customer is typically high end coffee is very confusing language. Only, it assumes the customer is only doing pour over French press high end methods at home. And so we use communication that was very easy to understand for someone who doesn't know every single term about coffee. On the cold brew side, what we did for Filtera was the opposite. We felt people were being under communicated to, and the coffee that was in the actual cold brew is not being highlighted. And so we took a high end approach with Filtera with very minimalistic branding, very clean, exudes high end quality. And the language we use is more sophisticated about the coffees because we're attracting people who value higher quality cold brew. And then for hot sauce, I think there's so few players in it that the different the differentiation of just, hey, this has coffee in it is description enough. And then differentiation in terms of the sales channels you choose. And this is easily the most difficult one as a super small business because you want to bring on any customer that'll have you. But I urge you, for the long-term health of your business, try to try to pick sales channels early on that you think have the highest upside long-term. Don't grasp at every opportunity that comes your way just because you want to get distribution and you want your business to be real because I understand the feeling that you're like, oh, I feel so phony that I don't like I, I keep saying I have this business, but we're like we're in one store or we're in no stores and it feels very weird. But pick your sales channels ahead of time. What So for us, the sales channels we chose for Folly were grocery stores first. We felt that there was a underrepresentation of high-end specialty coffee in grocery stores. For the cold brew side, we focused on bars and restaurants. There are almost no cold brews on tap at bars and restaurants. And for hot sauce, because there's a few major players in the market, this, so the hot sauce, let's not stick with that because that's not a great example because we didn't have the product before. So that's a good point to transition of finding customers. Because you want to choose your sales channels, this should be one of the first things you think about after you have the product in mind and the packaging and marketing design work done is who are the customers I want to attract? And in fact, even before you finish the marketing and branding, it can be very helpful to go to them way before your launch and say, hey, this is the idea this is the product, and this is the potential layout of what the branding will look like. I know that people that have a new product get very emotionally attached and like to think that the ideas that they have are completely right, and anyone that disagrees just doesn't get it. They just don't get it. They, haven't, they don't know what this market is, but guess what? Buyers at stores, they get it. And even if you think they don't get it, they're the ones that are ultimately going to decide if they want to buy your product. So... If possible, as you're finalizing the branding, everything else, go to buyers and say, this is the product concept. This is the branding. I'd love to get any open feedback. This isn't a sales pitch. I'm just trying to create the best looking product before getting to market. And you will get some very valuable insights. Things that you probably haven't thought of or very small things or even in the worst case scenario, legal things where they say, well, you have to have both the what's it called that we use for the US for measuring things like ounce like pounds it's at the the opposite's the metric system but you have to have both so you have to have ounces and grams on the packaging those those type of small things can get pointed out if you didn't know that and so bringing these two buyers and getting feedback can be really helpful ahead of time while also forming a relationship with potential buyers this also helps you solidify the sales channels that you're going to go for this will help keep you on track that if you get feedback from the sales channels and the customers that you want to partner with, 
this will help you stay on track and focused on those channels versus just taking absolutely any opportunity to bring this to market. On to differentiation, and this is probably, I don't know if it's a mistake, more so as it is just a common like fallacy that small business owners can create for themselves is both people who don't have a product and are trying to decide and people who have a product will fall into this trap is they've convinced themselves that my product is just better than everyone. This is just the best product that's on the market. Because especially in food and beverage, when taste is purely subjective, nothing is better or worse. There can be things that are better or worse, in my opinion, but for every, I think that the high-end, light-roasted, high-altitude Kenyan that we're roasting right now for the winer tastes way better than a Starbucks double Italian dark oily bean roast. But I just had someone contact me this week via, they called and were like, hey, I got your classic Joe. I just don't think it's bitter enough. I don't think you're roasting it to bring out the bitterness. And I was like, that's that's really what we focus on is not having bitterness in our coffee. Oh, well, I, th- I just, I think I don't like the bitterness. Or no, 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 it was the opposite. I just like that bitterness. I, I'm just not a fan of this one. I'm like, okay, <laughs> cool. <laughs> to be fair, they were calling to see if we had a dark roasted coffee. And I'm like, no, it's not really our thing, but to each their own. Sorry, I, sorry you missed on the Halloween coffee. Bruh. So you can't just say this product is better because taste is subjective. So if you, if the one thing you can say about your product in terms of differentiation is it tastes better than everything else, that it's not going to hold merit. That's like one of the things it has to have to have a chance at being successful. When you're talking differentiation, it's exactly what I said when I went to tasting the Folly Coffee hot sauce as I tasted it. And my first thought was, wow, this is delicious. My second thought was, I haven't tasted anything like this before. And that's what differentiation is. And that's why I ultimately decided to pursue this is I can't think of anything on the market that this reminds me of. And that's what differentiation is. It's not, oh, this just tastes better. It's different. You need a product that is unlike anything else on the market for it to succeed unless you think you have the ability to go head to head with somebody and just beat them in terms of hard work or resources. But if you're a company that an an already established business is going to have way more advantages in terms of existing relationships with customers, existing end customer base, existing brand recognition, that it's very difficult to enter a category and just go head to head with a new player, especially if they have a good product. And that's the other part of this in differentiation. When you're tasting other products, when you're looking at other products in the category, if you're, if you're evaluating effective marketing and branding, be honest with yourself. It would be stupid of me to say there aren't other amazing coffees in this market. It would be stupid of me to say that Crybaby Craig's isn't absolutely delicious because I have that in my fridge at all times. Go get it if you haven't had it. But if you're tasting other products and you go, oh, these are all shit, then you're just lying to yourself because they wouldn't be on the market selling if people thought they tasted really bad. Even if your product is superior, even if it has the exact same flavor profile, but it's higher quality and you think it tastes better, they have too many advantages of existing customers that how are you going to convince someone to switch over to yours without intense backbreaking resources of time, money, labor, everything. It's much more in your interest to have or to be honest with yourself I should say I didn't know how to phrase that for a second to be honest with yourself when tasting your own product and tasting others if it's possible try to do blind tasting whenever possible it's not really possible to blind taste your own product we can do it for coffee because we rotate our beans constantly and so we can blind taste samples before choosing so there's no biases in terms of like which farm or this and that and that's just taste we're choosing on it's not really possible with hot sauce because when I taste this, I go, this is the Folly Coffee hot sauce. But blind taste 
other competitors next to each other because unless you're really familiar with their product too, this might be a really good way to get unbiased feedback without the marketing, uh, branding, and all that. Or get your friends and family, get samples of all the competitors and yours. Send it out to friends and family. Send it out to unbiased third parties. Say, can you rank these? Tell me why. Or more simply, can you just rank these? Don't ask them to say why because that will mess up the statistics. Only ask them to rank them. That's it. No explanation needed. Rank them top to bottom. That will give you an unbiased opinion Is if your product is actually better, which is something that a lot of people will convince themselves. And that is differentiation more so than anything else is people that have no association with your brand, no association with you are buying it for a specific reason. <laughs> but just be real with yourself. If your own product isn't tasting perfect, don't launch it. If other competitors have a similar flavor profile and theirs is also really good, I would hesitate to enter that category or change your recipe to be different. So at this point, let's take the new hypothetical product. Oh, so we're talking we were talking like yogurt. So product differentiation, Greek yogurt is a great example of this. There was no existing Greek yogurt on the market. There were high-end yogurts that were exploding in growth. I think it was called Stonyfield is the one that was like driving this major national growth of organic yogurt, but there was no Greek yogurt. So if I was looking to start a company, I would see that yogurt 10 years ago had few major players. There was an existing gap in product differentiation. No one was doing Greek yogurt. And the trends in spending was going up. Perfect product. So how would I launch this now Greek yogurt 10 years ago if we can all pretend that this didn't happen at this point? This is how we're doing it. Is one, can you use a co-packer? I highly recommend starting it on your own in a kitchen if possible, especially if you are brand new to market, you don't have any customers. I would highly, highly recommend making it on your own in a community kitchen if possible. It's going to be a little more expensive in terms of ingredients because you can't buy in massive bulk like a co-packer can. The rent will be higher because you don't have to pay rent to a co-packer, but you'll have complete control of the product. And also, you won't have to make massive batches up front and then be sitting there sweating trying to figure out if you can get through the product before it expires, which not even get through it before it expires, but get it to the store with 90 days left on it so that it doesn't expire in store. And 90 days, it was cutting it really close. So start in the kitchen if you're brand new. But if you're not brand new, you have established customers like uh, like we do. Uh, in this case, we're going to a co-packer. So we are kind of able to skip the step of having to do a small kitchen because we have a killer recipe. We have it finalized, tasting awesome with the co-packer. And we have enough stores that would be way too big of a use of time for us to do the make-it-ourself solution. But... Can your business in the long term use a co-packer? Folly Coffee, we can't. And this, from a logistics and efficiency perspective, sucks. It's hard. It makes things way more difficult. But that, but it's what we do. It's what, what we love. And so we do it. Hot sauce? It's gr- we can do that with a co-packer. If we get them an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement that they sign, that they can't share our recipe, we give them the recipe they make it effectively and consistently, we can do that without sacrificing quality at all. So think of that ahead of time in your business and your planning for growth is, can we ever use a co-packer? And at what point should we start using a co-packer? And that's, that answer is unique for everybody. A lot of the times it comes down to just, hopefully you're outgrowing your space. You can't produce enough to keep up with demand. That's a great time to hop over, hop over to a co-packer. Or if you're just like making enough money or you have enough customers that it's worth switching over ahead of time so you don't have to be crunched for time when you're finding a co-packer. The second part for us is a distributor. Again, if you're starting a product from scratch, if you're finding customer one is the first person you're talking to now, I highly recommend delivering directly. 
I see other small businesses that go straight to distributors. And here's the trouble with that is you're not on the streets. You're not managing the product on your shelf, which is awesome in the long term. But in the short term, you need to know these kind of things. You need to know how does it look on the shelf. If I go back two weeks from now to restock it again, does it continue to look good? Are people mashing it on the shelf? Uh, There's a lot of different factors that being in the store, knowing the receivers, knowing the people in the back end, knowing the people working the floors, knowing the people up front is very advantageous to uh, spread the word of your brand. You should be talking to anyone you possibly can when you're in the store about, hey, check it out. We're a new company, blah, blah, blah. And that's a great way to raise awareness while you're in the store. This is the point where I'm falling now. We've been delivering directly for three years. The amount of time it is taking up now is too much. And the cost benefit analysis of the time being spent delivering the benefit of those relationships and being in store is now far less than the benefit of having an entire free day and taking accounting, inventory management, all those things off of our plate. But if you skip this step, too many people go to a distributor first, treat the distributor like they are their sales reps, which yes, I know a distributor has sales reps. Yes, I know a distributor now carries your product. They do not work for you. You can't treat a distributor like they work for you. Uh, I have an upcoming episode with Ryan from Revitalite. Awesome episode to listen to. Stay tuned for it. If you want to hear my thoughts on using distributors and your role you should play of being a salesperson for your own business versus expectations from a distributor and how they do it. But be realistic about that. I recommend delivering. You get to keep all the margin in the short term when having that margin is more important because you don't have the volume to make up for it. And you learn the stories, you meet your customers, you become the face of your brand. But another long-term question is, can I use a distributor? Does my product have a high enough margin that I can use a distributor? If you have a product that when you are delivering it yourself to the store, if it's under 30% margin, you're going to have a really, really hard time ever using a distributor. And you'll have to build in all the processes to be able to grow into your existing margin within your business. If you're looking at 40 plus percent margin on your product, distributors become a much more realistic option to be able to grow your business. So if you can use a co-packer and a distributor, these are great things to scale in the mid to long term, but I recommend making it yourself in a commercial kitchen, delivering it directly when you start. Finding customers. This is where you should be spending all all of your time outside of making the actual product when you start. Obviously not all your time. There's a lot of things that go into accounting, QuickBooks, all the, all the, I get it. But any time that you have should be spent finding customers. Well, I sent 10 emails and they never respond. Go to the store, knock on doors, walk into stores, who does the buying here? What do you think of this category? Would you what, would you like to taste my product? I have a bottle with me. This is a lot of work if you're starting from scratch. It makes launching new products when you have established relationships a lot easier and smoother because if you have good relationships and a good product, they're much more likely to want to partner with on it. But knock on doors, I mean, I could, I'll just say it now, but in this episode with Ryan about Revitalite, in over a period of a month, he was spending his weekends while still working a full-time job. He went to 150 plus high V's over the period of a month to get manager sign-offs on bringing in their product. Like that's so much work, but that's what you have to do. Don't rely just on social media. Don't wait for people to email you. Don't even just call. Call ahead of time to see if you can make an appointment, but if you can't ever get the person at the store that you think you'd be a great product fit for to answer, walk to the store, find it in person. So at this point, we've kind of done all this stuff. Let's say with like yogurt, co-packer, 
probably wouldn't exist at first with Greek yogurt because nobody was making it. So you would have to make it on your own in a kitchen. Then when it gets to the point that you have enough customers, you can then go to a co-packer and say, hey, I'm willing to invest in your facility to be able to make the product that I have. Or a co- if you're selling well enough, a co-packer might say, we will buy the stuff to be able to make your product if you co-pack with us. And then the distributor, you have the other advantage of waiting uh, to partner with the distributor is one, they might not even want to carry your product if you're brand new because they don't want to do the work like not that they don't want to do the work they don't have the time to do the work they have hundreds of other products and they're not in charge of launching your product so having customers ahead of time will make it easier to find a distributor that will work with you and then also it will make it that they want to work with you is if you have great sales it will be an easier discussion you will have a little bit more leverage in terms of margin requirements that the distributor has if you have an established sales repertoire sales revenue uh, for your product so after all this is done you either are making it yourself or have a co-packer you are delivering yourself or you have a distributor you have done the work of finding customers meeting with them getting feedback on your new branding on the package on the concept then comes the marketing strategy how do i get the word out and i will kind of breeze over covid strategy because hopefully it's something that doesn't last for years and years, and it's not something we always have to consider with new marketing, but sampling is far and away the best marketing strategy. Getting the product in people's mouths, getting feedback, getting them to spread the word. Second, but even during COVID times, is you can, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here, sample the product by get, getting it to the right people for free in request for feedback or, hey, do you want to do a giveaway or do you want to share? And that's something I was already doing with influencer marketing, so I'll get back to that. But the first thing is just sampling. In theory, if you're a small food beverage, you don't have a big team, you don't have a lot of people working for you, I would also not recommend hiring sampling teams. They will not do a great job at getting your product in front of people in the perfect way in terms of like description and your story. Only you know your story to its fullest. So you or someone you're working with or someone that is very well versed in who you, your product and your story are should be the ones in store sampling when you're brand new over time and you have a more established brand and it's the brand discovery isn't as important. This isn't as high importance that it's you in store doing it. But if you're brand new, absolutely have to be in store sampling. In these times, you can't do that. So is there a way to get the product in the hands of the customers of the stores that you are in? And this is where I just challenge you. You have to get creative. Work with buyers. Ask them, how can I get my product in their hands? Is there a sample size of your product that you could create to just have free available for people to pick up in store? There are ways to get around these things. Influencer marketing. This is basically kind of like a almost a digital version of sampling while also sampling people who have a wider reach than you do. Have it built into your budget, free product that you are giving away with no expectation of return on investment. Do not limit yourself in this sense because you will get frustrated. It's almost impossible to measure ROI on influencer marketing unless you are like an e-commerce store only. As many as you possibly can. For us at Folly, when we launch, it was 50. I'm going to probably do about, I think we're doing 100 for Folly. Send out free gift packages with your story, your product, and if you have the funds for it, a giveaway that you can do with these potential influencers on Instagram, on Facebook. TikTok is now starting to emerge a bit. Are there opportunities to get the word out? Send out free product. Get them talking about it. Get them excited about it. And if you you do have a differentiation of product, they will be much more likely to talk about it if you have an awesome, awesome product. And then video content and photo. Uh, Phones are really good now. If you don't have a good camera phone, if you don't have the latest iPhone, this is easily the best investment you can make. It might be a big punch in the gut, but your videos, your photos, everything will be better. There's all these different tips and tricks for taking iPhone photos or whatever brand you use photos online, YouTube, how to take the best photos with a phone and posting consistently and tagging people and sending more free product and finding opportunities for promotions on the marketing side. We are have been focusing a lot more on digital marketing this year. And one thing I'm really excited about is geo-targeted campaigns for physical products. 
if you're an e-commerce store, you don't really need to geotarget as much. But if you've launched in a new store and you want people to know about your product before they walk in the store, if you're not actually there sampling, how could they possibly know about it before then? You can target areas with Facebook, with Instagram. You can target the engagement on your ad and you can tell them exactly where your product is available. So you can go to a store and say, hey, as a part of being in the store, I'm going to spend money and I'm going to invest on my end on a really hyper-targeted, geo-targeted cafe, uh, a campaign of everybody within five blocks of your store. That's a really cool way for somebody to be like, oh, I live by that store. I can, I'm going to go check that out the next time I'm in. It adds value to your customer your retailer. They're like, oh, this person's doing things to help support us out of the store. That's awesome. And that is pretty much like the full product launch side on the physical front of getting into retailers with a physical food and beverage product. I'm going to wrap up on e-commerce because this is something we've been focusing on more this year. And again, this is not my wheelhouse per se. I've learned a heck of a lot more about it this year, but by no means will I claim to be an e-commerce expert. I try to outsource as many things on the digital marketing, digital front as I possibly can, which has brought its own difficulties because there are things that are out of my control that make me uncomfortable and keep going wrong. And I don't know why, because I'm not super well versed in this, but you definitely need to have an online store. It's higher margin, you have complete control of the product. They're, they will get the product in theory fresher. It, it has touched less hands. And I don't mean that from like a germaphobe standpoint. I mean that there's less potential for breakage. There's less potential for broken seals. There's less potential for it going in a really hot truck and then being delivered to a cooler and then put on the shelf where it's, again, not even from a safety standpoint, but from a flavor standpoint could wreck what you're producing. These are all things that are out of your control in the retail physical front, but on the online front, you control it from when it's in the package to when it arrives on their step. Obviously, you have the added step of having to package it yourself. Two things that I have absolutely had my mind changed on this year. COVID forced our hand with the digital front, and I've had my mind changed on two things. One, the importance of an e-commerce store for a food beverage business. This is a place where people are continuing to shop more and more. In-store visits are becoming less frequent because more and more of those one-off products can be taken care of by going to Amazon, by going to Instacart, by going to that chain's website and buying directly for their store. If you can make it so that they're going to your website for those one-off products, you will see the benefits of a more uh, a customer that is getting your product directly when you control it. And hopefully you can get them as a subscriber. That's the other thing I've had my mind. I'm sorry. There are three things I've had my mind changed on. The second is subscription model. It is highly necessary to have a recurring subscription model. If you have a fast moving consumer package, good. If it is something that someone is consuming food, beverage, whatever it may be, if they're using that product and it's something that they could get again. So this is the difference between like, If I got a set of silverware versus some coffee, that's silverware, I'm not going to buy a new set of silverware every year. It's going to be until the things don't work anymore 20 years from now that I might buy a new set. With coffee, with a moderate consumer, they'll need a new 12-ounce bag every two weeks. And that would be really big cups like I drink. Regular person every four weeks. But... If you don't have the subscription model of recurring, on our original website, we had everything paid up front. It wasn't very effective. It's too much of a spend at once, and it's like a lot to look at. The subscription model makes it so they only pay for that bag each time it arrives, but it's automatic. And this is the other side of the e-commerce store that you can set up a system that's beneficial for you and your customer. It's more convenient for them, and it's more stable for you. The third thing I've had my mind change about. So first, the importance of an e-commerce store and focusing on it. Second is the subscription model. Third is Amazon. I have not had my mind change that Amazon is incredibly frustrating. It is hard to get set up on. It is hard to get in contact with an actual human that will help you through the process. But if you can get through that stuff 
and you have the resources to spend heavily on advertising, this is a very intriguing platform. If you have the funds to be able to hire someone else to do it, unless you're an existing Amazon expert or you have the time to be able to learn it inside and out, try to hire someone to make you the titles of your product, to put it in the product categories, to advertise it effectively, to be able to change how you're advertising or who you're advertising to over time, to manage the inventory, the shipments, all of that. If you can do that, that's the last thing I've had my mind changed about. And in terms of these like geo-targeted digital campaigns or the Instagram, Facebook advertising we're doing to drive people to our e-commerce store, again, unless you are an e-commerce expert and you are hyper confident in your ability to make advertisements for the online category, or not category, but channel, find someone that can. And this is something that unless you've got some good resources built up as a brand new business, this is something that I would wait until you have the funds to be able to do, but don't make the mistake of just trying to do it yourself. I've done some campaigns myself and the ROI is atrocious because I have no idea who to target, how to target, how to do conversions best, how to get people buying the product, repeat buyers of the product, what type of video to post, when to post a video versus a photo, how often to post, how often should I run the campaign, how long should I run the campaign, how much do I need to spend on an effective campaign? These are all things that a digital marketing expert can help you out on. And the gig economy is so strong right now that you can find really, really great people who will be reasonable on the spending, but also don't just find the cheapest option. Do your research. Find somebody with a good book of business that can show you that they've had success in similar categories. That is how I would launch a product online, a website platform design it yourself at first eventually hire someone to build a better website squarespace has an awesome recurring platform that you can do monthly or weekly subscriptions you can't do both unfortunately but you can do monthly subscriptions on squarespace it's a very easy to build out a simple online store have a plan in place to launch on Amazon at some point, but don't launch on there until you have someone to do it for you because you will mess it up and that is causing me a buttload of pain right now as our store is deactivated because of a mistake I made in the first time I tried to launch it. And having effective digital marketing campaigns, both targeted geo uh, geographically to get people into stores that you are now in or to drive traffic to your website also hire someone to do that unless you're really good at it and you've done it before. So that is where I will end this episode and I will end it like I end every other one and say, have a nice day.